Welcome to the Rejected Religion Podcast. I'm Stephanie Shea. We're at episode 29, and my guest is Mike Maranacci, author of the new book, Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches, LSD, Cannabis, and Spiritual Sacraments in Underground America. Mike is an independent expert on psychedelic spiritual groups and non-traditional American religious sects. He is also the author of California Jesus and Mysterious California, and co-author of the best-selling Weird California. And he lives in the San Francisco Bay Area in California, USA. For those who have followed the podcast for a while, the name Christian Greer might sound familiar to you as he's been a recurring guest on the podcast. Christian put Mike in touch with me, so this interview probably wouldn't have happened without the help of Christian. My thanks to him for that. In this very engaging conversation, Mike starts by talking about what inspired him to write this book, and then we jump into discussing several of the major psychedelic groups he discusses in his book. A few highlights from our interview, the Native American Church and their struggle to receive legal permission from the United States government to use peyote in their rituals, how non-Indigenous people also tried to gain this legal permission for their own churches, the highly eventful life of Timothy Leary and his engagement with LSD, and his later League for Spiritual Discovery, the forerunner to satirical groups such as the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, the Neo-American Church, the introduction of crisis response help with the use of LSD by the Church of Naturalism, the switch to the use of legal drugs by the Church of the Tree of Life, the success of the Ethiopian Zion Coptic Church with the Rastafarians, and the downfall of the church after the group became too highly involved in drug trafficking, and the complicated efforts to profit commercially from the use of entheogens by the present-day Ayahuasca Healings Group. It's a lot to unpack, but I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, Mike, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. I'm so glad that we're talking today, and it took us a while to get this interview set up, but I'm very glad that it finally worked out. Uh huh. So am I. <laughs> Good. Well, you are most welcome. Uh, you've written a book called Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches, LSD, Cannabis, and Spiritual Sacraments in Underground America. I was able to read most of your book before this interview, and I enjoyed it very much. Oh, thank you. You're most welcome. Uh, in the foreword of your book, written by Dr. Christian Greer, who is a great friend to Rejected Religion, he notes that your book is an historical survey of major and minor psychedelic churches, sects, and spiritual circles, and also that it's the first of its kind. Could you share why you think a book like this hasn't been written before now, and also what compelled you to write it? Okay, um... There is a similar book out there, which is an academic uh, work called God on a High by Lori Kozad, but she restricted herself to cannabis using groups. And as I said, it was published academic press, uh, very much that kind of style, and mine is, is more popular style. 
as far as why a book like this has not been done before, I think uh, part of it is because of the um, the legal issues uh, involved in this um, up until recently, and still many, if not all, of the groups that I describe are violating uh, federal and state and local laws uh, by possessing and using the uh, psychedelic sacraments that they do, and I think a lot of them have been rather um, r- rather reticent about cutting, coming forward to discuss their activities. Um, it's also been hard to dig up act, uh, information about them because, uh, yeah. particularly in the in the the the, uh, the depths of the uh, the war on some drugs in the 1980s, uh, they were just lying. The ones that were still existed were lying very very low. Uh, they began in the 90s to kind of come out uh, as things eased up and become a little more visible. And of course, when the internet happened, uh, anybody could set up a site and say, well, this is what they were doing. And um, I have a few groups like that in there. I think just one or two, three-person little organizations that um, uh, came in with with web technology. Um, but I would say, yeah, I would say it's, it's mainly, and it's also just a fairly obscure corner of the uh, the human and the American religious experience, yeah. even though as there more research has been done about it, more books are being done about the phenomenon, the global phenomenon and the historical phenomenon back to um, Paleolithic times, uh, it's becoming a more, uh, more I wouldn't say more popular, but a more accepted uh, aspect of that part of, of human experience that... Mm our gods may have originated with our, um, our, our ecstatic or intoxicated states in, uh, in yeah. ancient times. And there's this association with um, intoxicants and, and the, um, the rapture of, of, uh, of spiritual, uh, of the spiritual experience. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, understandable the way you uh, uh, explain that. I can understand how that uh, people might be, have, have been reticent, uh, to, uh, to talk to you and also with all of the other all the other issues that you just brought up um, so in your book the first major psychedelic group that you discuss is the Native American Church uh, and as people might know the use of peyote by indigenous Americans is an important part of their religion uh, but many might not know the history behind the struggle for Native Americans to be at, to be able to actually practice this part of their religion in the United States. Uh, would you expand on this? Okay. Well, um, there's evidence for the use, the ritual use of peyote in North America going back several thousand years. However, it really didn't come above board until after the, um, the 1890 Ghost Dance Rebellion when a couple of the leaders of the ghost dance, John Wilson and Quanta Parker, discovered peyote uh, that had been brought up to the the Midwestern, uh, the Plains tribes from Mexico and had profound experiences on it and said, this is, this is what the indigenous, now that the indigenous peoples of North America have pretty much lost everything, this will give us hope, this will give us vision, this will bond our communities together. 
And so in the 1890s, uh, they came up with some rituals and some practices and, and uh, to, for the, um, the use of peyote. And it began, the, it began to spread, and almost immediately, uh, the government started clamping down on them. Uh, they thought that peyote was just like a more intense and more earthy form of whiskey, and that it was going to make the, uh, the Indians crazy and, um. and, and, and wreck their lives and whatever. So um, a white anthropologist, James Mooney, who had done peyote himself in ceremony and was very sympathetic to their cause, said, look, if you want this to last, you have to incorporate as a religious group because then you can stand on the First Amendment, that we are practicing our freedom of religion by holding peyote ceremonies. So uh, in 1918, the Native American Church was incorporated as a pan-tribal organization in Oklahoma, and they uh, spent the next 75-odd years fighting in the courts for their right to use peyote. And um, two big decisions in the early 60s came in their favor, and that would be the Atakai decision in Arizona and the Woody one in California, both of which said, yes, this is still considered an illegal drug, but so long as it's confined to Native Americans using it on reservations, well, we the feds and the state governments will kind of look the other way. Uh, then there was the, uh, um, there was an act in the late seventies, I forget the name that was, was uh, passed on the federal level to protect Native American religious practices in general. And it was assumed that peyotism was part of that, but then there was a very high profile bust of a, uh, man in Oregon. And that one went, uh, not so much a bust, I'm sorry, it was he was denied unemployment benefits because he'd been a drug counselor and, and had been um, fired for using a peyote in ceremony. And, and he had uh, appealed to the state and they wouldn't, uh, they said, hey, you're a drug counselor, you shouldn't be doing this stuff. And it finally went to the um, U.S. Supreme Court which ruled against him. And that touched off kind of a panic uh, among not only the peyotists, but I think non-Orthodox religions in general saying, hey, if, it, if they can um, ban, the, if they can get a, somebody on peyotes, what other non-Orthodox practices can you be fired from your job and denied unemployment mm -hmm. benefits yeah. for? So that led to the uh, American Indian Freedom Restoration Act of, I believe it was 1993, and then there was an amendment tacked onto that a year later saying that so long as you are a, can, can uh, trace your ancestry to at least one quarter membership in registered Native American tribes, you can participate in the ceremonies of the Native American church and use peyote legally. And that finally just settled it once and for all. And then two years later, Canada wrote a whole bunch of new drug laws that carved out an exemption for their uh, Indian peyotists. So they, I start with them because they are the biggest and the most public and have done most of the real heavy lifting in the courts are the most established and have the oldest roots here being uh, from being indigenous peoples. What followed in their wake 
largely inspired by them is a whole different story. And I, I get into all those uh, those anecdotes and those accounts in uh, psychedelic cults and outlaw churches. Yes, indeed. Uh, when uh, non-Indigenous people also wanted to start using peyote as part of their their own spiritual or religious practice, many you write many Native Americans protested against this uh, for yes. various reasons. Uh, could you talk more about this tension in the context of uh, two groups that you discuss in the book called the Church of the Awakening and the Oklevuela, Vuela, pardon me, Oklevuela yeah. mm-hmm. Native American Church? as well as this whole struggle for quote-unquote white people to gain this exemption from legal prosecution of the use of peyote as the Native Americans had finally achieved? Well, oddly enough, it was black people that were the first non-Indigenous uh, peyotists mm-hmm. in America. There was a group called the um, the Church of the Four- Firstborn in Oklahoma in the 1920s, that was mostly African Americans, but they didn't last too long because their founder, who was a uh, a black man who had grown up among uh, the Indian nations and spoke their languages and sort of adapted peyotism from their uses to his community, he was murdered in 1926. And the only reason we even know anything about him is because his daughter approached an anthropologist and said, hey, if you're studying uh, Indians around here, I want to tell you about my my dad who was doing this stuff. <laughs> The Church of the Awakening originated in the early 1960s um, uh, with the uh, two retired white osteopaths. And they uh, saw peyote as the key to, or peyote and mescaline, really, which is the active ingredient, as the key to spiritual awakening. They were very much influenced by Aldous Huxley's The Door of Percept. Doors of Perception and Humphrey Osmond's uh, studies of psychedelics. And they got busted initially by, I believe, the FDA, but they never ran into too much trouble, I think partly because they were on the move a lot. They had a little VW but, uh, van, bus van, that um, they used as a mobile peyote tent, and they went around America initiating people into the church with peyote ceremonies and speaking about it. And they were not really considered a threat. However, they did they did try to get their uh, their practices uh, recognized by the courts, recognized as legitimate First Amendment uh, protected practices. And they eventually got as high as the Ninth Circuit Court, who said, "Well, you guys aren't really a religion. See, the Native Americans, peyote is the center of your of their religion. You just have a lot of." you know, very esoteric and eclectic uh, teachings from a lot of different sources. And, oh, by the way, we use peyote and mescaline to, uh, you know, to, to, to kind of enhance the spiritual uh, experience. So you don't, you can't really have the protections as the native, the same protections as the native Americans. And also with the native American church, they have a, a provable use of it going way back, not just to the 1890s and, um, and, and the wake of the ghost dance, but increasingly there's evidence that it goes back in Mexico and other places, hundreds if not thousands of years. So they kind of got grandfathered into the, uh, uh, the legal exception. Uh, now, the Oklaveva Church is much more recent. It was founded by a man who is uh, of part Native American descent himself, James Mooney. He claims to be a uh, 
descendant of both James Mooney, the anthropologist who helped found the Native American church, and um, a couple other notable figures in, uh, in Native American history. He has very, he's a very controversial figure, not only because he has taken peyote outside of the context of the Native American church and the, uh, uh, the indigenous American culture and tradition, but he has also added other organic um, entheogens to the list of the church's acceptable um, sacraments. Uh, they accept uh, cannabis, ayahuasca, psilocybin, uh, San Pedro and cactus and some others. And this has really ticked off a lot of Native Americans who are involved in peyotism and, and in general, because they say, number one, really the hundred year struggle we've had to have peyote recognized is really ours. We're the ones who've done all the work. We're the ones who have this heritage. It shouldn't really be going to other groups. And number two, this is about peyote and peyote only. These other substances are not part of it. This is not part of our heritage. And you're um, disrespecting and and kind of polluting the um, our heritage and our culture and our spiritual quest by including all this other stuff. A third thing, very controversial thing about him was I describe him in Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches as the most... A successful psychedelic church planter in history. He uh, ended up chartering several hundred branches of the Oklahoma Native American Church across America and into Europe and other countries, and uh, was not real good. He was so enthusiastic about his mission that he admitted to me later, well, I wasn't really good about screening a lot of the people who were uh, purchasing church charters and getting getting things organized. There were some real whack jobs that uh, ended up in his camp. And I believe right now there's only several dozen uh, branch churches that are in good standing. He just had to pull the, um, the the papers on so many of them because it was because of all the different abuses and people at, uh, exploiting um, the church label to do things. Uh, so he's they still exist and. It's still, um, they're still kind of in a gray area, but I, I interviewed Mr. Mooney, very fascinating character and uh, very colorful and very, uh, I think, very sincere in, uh, in his mission. And I get into that more in the book. Yeah. Uh, another thing you mentioned about the, the, the couple from the Church of the Awakening, they didn't really fit the mold of uh, what the, the stereotypical, I guess, mold of the quote-unquote hippie uh, uh, type of person, the younger person from, you know, a younger generation, because they were, they were an older couple, uh, yeah, yeah. as you they, yeah. write about. They were, uh, they were both 62 and, and retired early when, uh, when they formed the church. Um, they had no bo bohemian background or interests. Right. Um, yeah. uh, John Aiken, who was the husband of the couple, had been a Rotarian and a town council member and just very respectable mainstream Americans. And I think that was, um, that was part of why they didn't, they didn't get harassed too much until the end. And I drew a parallel between them and, and, and Timothy Leary, Timothy Leary, the first time, uh, by the time he showed him up in public, um, in the public eye was middle-aged and, um, brilliant psychologist and, um, you know, Harvard, a uh, Harvard instructor and 
did not have any connections to the real connections to uh, to the beatniks or anything like that. Right. But he took things in a very different direction. Yeah. Um, he was always a, a, a showman and a self-publicizer and he really treated the whole thing as a um it became a much 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 more 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 high profile um uh sort of mission to uh evangelize for lsd particular and his his circus but but the entheogens in general mm, indeed yeah let's let's uh, go a little bit deeper into this uh, because this discussion would be incomplete without talking about timothy leary uh <laughs> his uh he created the League for Spiritual Discovery at a, at a later date, but he was originally, as you said, the academic doing experiments yes. at Harvard with psilocybin mm-hmm. mushrooms. And of course, that appeared very respectable and acceptable what mm-hmm. he was doing. Uh, but then, as you write, he met uh, a man named Michael Hollingshead, and uh, he tried LSD for the first time, and then things started to become much more complex and complicated for him. Uh, and also with his goals, you know, regarding his work, uh, could you talk more about what led Leary to make all of these radical changes in his approach? Well, I think LSD was part of it. And his original vision with psilocybin and with LSD in the beginning was that this was going to be a revolutionary therapeutic agent, that this was going to take the place of psychotherapy and the and electroshock and the rather crude uh, psychiatric drugs of the era as a way to bring people to sanity. And of course, this was the, also the original vision of, of the Sandoz laboratories and the way they, uh, they marketed it in the, um, after it first was released in the market in the late 1940s. I think things changed a lot when they did the, what's called the, the, the Marsh Chapel experiment uh, on Good Friday in 1962. Uh, Marsh Chapel is a, uh, a little church in Boston connected to a university there. And they did an experiment where they took a bunch of, um, of uh, divinity students, and half of them were given... A, uh, a placebo, and half of them were given a dose of psilocybin, and the ones who were dosed just had this incredible uh, religious experience there. And I think that kind of planted the seeds of this going beyond just being a therapy, that this becoming more like the the key to to to, to religious gnosis and being able to replicate the experience of the great mystics. And I think he, he and Richard Alpert, who was another um, Harvard academic involved with him, uh, Richard Alpert, who, of course, later became Ram Das, just got more and more enthusiastic and more and more uh, kind of slipshod about what they were doing, where it was not really um, controlled experiments or regular academic studies anymore. And finally, Harvard gave both of them boot, and I think that radicalized them both. Um and they stopped seeing themselves as academics or researchers and started seeing themselves more as uh, prophets or evangelists. Mm. And this, the, uh, the entheogens themselves less as um, um, therapeutic agents and more as, um, as holy sacraments. So I think it was, that was really the, the, uh, the progression of, of events that, that led to uh, Leary becoming more or less the high prophet of the psychedelics in the 60s and afterwards. Mm. 
One thing that surprised me while reading your book is that when Leary and his colleague Richard Albert that you have uh, just mentioned, they formed the, the Castellia Foundation, uh, mm-hmm. but they didn't promote the use of drugs at all with this foundation. They they rather uh, used techniques taken from Gurdjieff, uh, who's a very well-known figure within esotericism and, and others, of mm-hmm. course. Uh, would you expand on why they seem to be stepping away from publicly promoting the use of L- LSD with the Castellia Foundation? Well, that was because they were they were gun shy after kick, being kicked out of three countries um, for for using then legal LSD in them and 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 doing these gatherings where everybody was doing it. Um, first, it was in Mexico at Zihuatanejo. They had uh, two retreats there and. The, the second one, which he really, again, the man just had such a flair for publicity, really went to the press about and said, hey, we're going to we're bringing people out here and we're going to have all these life changing experiences with this new chemical called lysergic acid diethylamide. Uh, the Mexican government reacted with alarm and said, no, you can't come here. So they tried a couple of uh, island nations in the West Indies. Same thing happened there. The government got word of what was going on and threw them out. And so that when they finally were able to settle at Millbrook, which is this huge uh, estate in upstate New York, kind of east of Poughkeepsie, uh, they said, maybe we better publicly uh, tone down the promotion of, of acid. We'll do it here. And among the regular residents, it'll be kind of an open secret that we're doing it. But when we're dealing with the outside world, when we're bringing people we don't know in, we're going to have these non-drug um, uh, related workshops and seminars and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, among themselves, privately, they were all continuing to use LSD. Right. And uh, it was just, and then finally, the Castelia Foundation kind of um, kind of faded away in the, in the um, uh, when he, came up with the League for, for Spiritual Discovery and became much more um, public again. I think well, part of the stimulus for, for that was when he was um, had hearings in front of the Senate in the early, early 1966 and, and really went on record saying, hey, this, this should be legalized and controlled and this is very powerful and it's not heroin, it's not uh, whatever... I think that, uh, again, he was such a hound for publicity and a um, and such a, a firebrand and lightning rod that he liked, he, he wanted to be an outlaw. He wanted to have really the status of, yes, it's this is a new religion, and uh, if you don't like it, well, too bad. And he continued to promote it even after um, LSD was made illegal across the board in late 1966. So that's uh, that's my answer there. So with the League of Spiritual Discovery, as you said, founded in 1966, Leary made his now famous quote, turn on, tune in, drop out. And now most people have heard this quote. I've heard this quote growing up. Uh, but mm-hmm. would you talk about what Leary actually meant by this and as opposed to how the mainstream public interpreted yeah. it? Well, it wasn't even in that that order in the original quote. It was something oh. like I I don't know how he phrased it, but he had explanations for each of those of those little um, those little sayings. 
My interpretation has always been turn on to the interior workings of your mind through the psychedelics. Find out who you really are. Find out what reality is through your eyes. Tune in would be take it a bit further and listen to what the that wisdom inside you is saying and decide, am I living the life I want to live? Am I looking at things the way I should be looking at them? How am I relating to other people? And, you know, what messages am I getting from other people? And how, you know, what what communication is going on? And then drop out to me means just dropping out of your normal dysfunctional ways of relating with yourself, relating with people, relating with the environment, and just finding a new and better way of living and perceiving and acting. Now, I think he, he, um, he was responsible for some of the confusion in his famous uh, appearance at the human being in San Francisco in January 1967. And I've seen some footage of him on stage there and he's wearing a white robe and he's saying, Tune on, turn on, tune in, and drop out. Drop out of high school. Drop out of college. Drop out of being a junior executive. Drop out of being a senior executive. He's not saying go be an irresponsible screw-up. He's saying drop out of your role, the role that you've kind of been taught to have or forced to have, that there's more to you than just what you're what you're what you are as a social being in 1967 America your career your um all, all these other things and i think that that uh, that nuance has, has just been lost on a lot of yeah. people yeah yeah i think uh especially that nuanced uh exp- explanation that you just gave more more i think that the at least hearing people as i grew up uh hearing people you know, talk about it, if it would ever come up to, you know, in a conversation, the yeah. way it was always in a negative, uh, a yeah. derogatory manner of, oh, that guy just, you know, he just wanted everybody just to, you know, be stoned all the time. Yeah. And that's not, <laughs> not what it was that's, about yeah, at all. No, no. no. <laughs> so, yeah, that's very, very odd that there's this completely different interpretation by uh, the, the, out, the, I guess, the outsider's, uh, you know, uh, understanding yeah. of it. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for for explaining what what he actually meant uh, by by that phrase and what he yeah what he that's was actually my, getting that's at. That's my take anyway yeah. from my readings of him. And I met the man twice. Mm-hmm. So, and I will say again, he loved the spotlight. He <laughs> loved um, the being part of the media and part of the uh, the spectacle. And I think he would sometimes say things that were rather outrageous um, just for publicity, yeah. just to uh, just to troll people or to get, uh, you know, to get attention. Yeah. Switching gears now to the Neo-American Church, founded by, quote, clown and wild man, end quote, Arthur Kleps. Uh, you write how this group used humor and silliness to convey a message of solipsistic nihilism. Uh, could you talk a little bit about this philosophy and what it's about? Uh, because probably the listeners don't know this, uh, what he meant by all of this, and how Arthur Kleps uh, incorporated it into his group. Okay. Well, Kleps was a um, up, also from upstate New York. He was a 
school psychologist who in 1960, about a month before Leary had his first trip on mushrooms in Mexico, tried mescaline sulfate and just had a earth-shattering experience but because he was married and had kids and a job, kind of had to go back to those the next day and just file away the um, the masculine trip is kind of an interesting interlude in his life. Three years later, um, he was reading in the New York Times about Millbrook when it was first getting going in December of 1963 and said, well, this these people sound like they're having the same experience as I did three years ago. I should go and check this out. So he visited Millbrook and didn't get along with people too well there. He was a hard drinker and very opinionated and had a very kind of raucous sense of humor. And everybody at the time was just being, oh, so clinical and serious and quasi-Eastern. And he ticked off a lot of people there. And uh, But while he was having his initial uh, stay, he while he was completely sober, was walking around the grounds of the estate and had a mystical experience that convinced him uh, that life is a dream, that the externality of relations, meaning everything happening around us, is just part of our dream, part of our consciousness. And on the one hand, that means you don't have to take life too seriously because you're just dreaming it. On the other hand, you have to be very, very tuned into what's happening around you and the signals that are happening because it's it's you talking to yourself. And he called this philosophy solipsistic nihilism. And then if, about a year later, he bought a, um, a sort of a ramshackle resort property on a lake in the Adirondacks in upstate New York and formed a church there, which he called the Neo-American Church, as opposed to the Native American Church. This was for the rest of us who are all the descendants of, of immigrants. And um, for about a year and a half, was having acid retreats there. Again, LSD was legal at the time, and um, people like uh, Jack Kerouac visited him there once. Leary visited him a couple of times. And then that whole fell, all fell apart, and he was kind of loose for a while, and then finally ended up at Millbrook in early 67 and was staying in one of the buildings there and continuing the church. And his whole approach was, although we're serious about our pursuit of higher consciousness and our pursuit of the realization that life is a dream, we're going to have some fun with it. We're going to keep it from being institutionalized and churchy. Uh, he called himself and his followers boohoos. Um, the symbol of the church was a three-eyed toad, and that was kind of a reference to the the theory, a now established fact at the time, that there were some some species of amphibians that that had uh, that gave us entheogenic secretions. The, the, one of the church hymns was "Row, row, row your boat. Life is but a dream." Uh, the church key was a bottle opener, and he would give people in the church these these silly honorary titles. Uh, it was very much kind of a uh, a prototype of groups that we see now, like the uh, the Subgenius Foundation right. and the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, right. where it's it's very humorous and yeah. satirical. And I think he really kind of pioneered that approach. Yeah. Sounds like it.
when I started, uh, when I first started reading the chapter about George Peters, moving on now to uh, to another uh, gentleman, um, when I was reading about George Peters and his far out story about meeting an alien and how the CIA was involved with their MK Ultra program. I'm thinking to myself, this could be material for a David Lynch film or, you know, maybe better the X-Files or something like that. Um, but I thought this was very interesting because his church of naturalism, as he called it, uh, yeah. he introduced this new element of what he called crisis or you call crisis response with the use yes. of uh, LSD. Uh, this was introduced into this greater narrative of the of the psychedelics. And I just found George... Peters to be very, very interesting guy. Uh, could you talk more about what Peters was doing with his crisis work and what eventually happened to him? Because it wasn't very nice. Okay. Um, he is a very enigmatic figure. <laughs> and I go into uh, his whole story in Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches. He told different people different things about uh, when he'd been introduced to psychedelics. Some people, he said, well, it was when I was in the Navy in the mid and late 50s and they were doing experiments. Other people, he was saying, well, it was when I moved into Chicago in the early 1960s and I met this person who said they were an alien and that I was to be the um, the prophet of their particular, their particular philosophy on Earth. He founded, originally his organization was called Naturalism Incorporated, and it was in, really oriented towards something that was not being addressed properly at the time by the medical or psychological community, and that was bad trips on LSD, as uh, has been very heavily documented. The psychedelics can, um, can pull out the, ru the rug out from under you existentially and in other ways. Uh, you could have very scary and, uh, and, and bad experiences on them. At the time, nobody really knew how to treat this. And so people like Peters and another gentleman I uh, mentioned in my book, Michael Itkin, set themselves up as sort of, um, as, as a sort of bad trip uh, uh, consultants and therapists. If uh, they would have phone lines, you would call them if you're having a bad experience, they'd come over and talk you down or in, um, Peters's case, maybe give you some tranquilizers or barbiturates to uh, to short circuit the bad trip. It soon became a very big operation. He was not dealing just with people on bad trips, but with runaways and addicts and whatnot around the Chicago area. He became kind of a, a local folk figure there and expanded the uh, the operation to other places. But he started running into lots of trouble again because he was he was operating crash pads for runaways and there were rapes and suicides there and he was really being pressured by the uh, the authorities. So he relocated to, to L.A. in the early 70s, set up what's called the Church of Naturalism. And again, although they never endorsed the use of LSD or other entheogens formally, they were definitely in the picture they they he they definitely were using cannabis in a lot of their practices, uh, possibly LSD. They were almost certainly in Los Angeles running a um, running a drug selling operation out of a, a big mansion in uh, in the Hollywood Hills in Laurel Canyon. And then finally, 
in it would have been in about in 1982, late 1982, he and his lieutenant were murdered at the mansion. And at the time, people were really frightened about that because just a year earlier, on the other end of Laurel Canyon, there'd been what are called the Wonderland murders, so the four on the floor murders, when four um, drug dealers were beaten to death. And he and his um, his lieutenant were both beaten to death, and, pe- and people were going, oh, you know, what's going on? Finally, it was determined that uh, a couple of uh, disgruntled employees had tried to rob them and had ended up killing them in the process, and they were they were put away, and that was basically the end of the Church of Naturalism. But there's a lot of very strange stuff uh, surrounding the career of Peters. Um, first of all, George Peters was not his real name. It was George Fitzpatrick, as I was able to determine later from some some research. And he once told a reporter, well, George Peters isn't my real name. And anybody familiar with uh, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn would know that George Peters is the pseudonym that Huck was going by. So right there, there was a little, a little clue that something was off. Um, he's been accused of being a possible uh, intelligence agent. Um, they just, they, so yeah, you're right. Somebody could really do an interesting documentary or episode of a X-Files in David Lynchian uh, movie about, about him and his doings. And I get into them in more detail in, um, in Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches. Yes, you do. Very, very interesting uh, chapter. Do you know anything perhaps about uh, the legacy of this crisis response? Uh, outside of uh, of the work that they were doing, is this as this? I mean, I I know that there are, I know yeah. that there are now in, in present day that there are groups and organizations that mm-hmm. that uh, that work work to help with uh, with addicts of of other types of drugs, hard yeah. drugs. But I didn't mm-hmm. know if there were still groups that were doing this type of work to help to help with uh, with these types of experiences. Oh, very much so. And really, it, the, the work began among among trained medical professionals, which uh, Peters was not. Uh, he claimed to be, but nobody could find any evidence of that, would be with uh, Dr. David Smith in the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, which um, did, kind of pioneered a lot of this work among um, more organized and more credentialed uh, people in, in medicine and psychology. There was the Do It Now Foundation in 1970, and these days you have groups like um, like Dance Safe, which works in the rave community, and a few others that work in things like Burning Man, where you're going to have at any given time thousands of people right. uh, that are tripping or doing <laughs> exactly. God knows what. And, and by law of averages, many of them are going to have some bad experiences, so you have to have trained people there not necessarily uh, physicians and psychologists and therapists, but just a peer, uh, their peers there who've been properly trained to, 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 to talk them down and to, and to deal with, with somebody having a, what, what the hippies used to call a bummer. So it's really something that, uh, that, that Peters and a few other people at the time kind of got going and then, and then became a more organized and established and credentialed uh, form of uh, form of like street therapy, guerrilla therapy, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is just the non-judgmentalism too. Yeah. Okay, you took something illegal. That's not we're not cops. That's not the issue here. Right. The issue is that you're suffering, and we want we want to we we want to help you. 
Mm. Yeah, makes makes total sense that that would still be happening today with, uh, especially with uh, festivals like Burning Man and where, yeah, makes makes total sense. Moving uh, now to the Church of the Tree of Life. What I found interesting with this group is that the drugs they used were legal, uh, but Mm -hmm. they didn't see them as quote unquote sacraments per se, uh, but more as tools for consciousness uh, expansion. Uh, could mm-hmm. you explain these differences in approach and how this group influenced future groups? Well, I would say that they saw them as sacraments in in that um, they wanted, they had discovered the founder, uh, John Mann, had done a lot of research and had found all of these um, organic and non-organic uh, substances that were psychoactive that were legal. And he says, you know, we want to do with these what the Native American church would do with peyote. Say these are our, the sacraments of our church so that if they're ever made illegal, we can go in and fight uh, fight the government on First Amendment grounds. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. It Part was, of my that misunderstanding. Was, uh, that's, no, no, that's, that's okay. Of course, they were really, yeah, they, and the concepts are interchangeable. In, in in my studies between a sacrament, which is the, uh, what of the Catholic Church, the outer sign of an inner grace or something like that, you know, the the, the really the, the center of a religious or spiritual practice and the thing that, that is, distinguishes a sta- spiritual or religious practice. And of course, psychoactives that, that allow for, uh, for consciousness expansion. Um, the Church of the Tree of Life yeah, has a um, there's actually a little little book that's still in print called Legal Highs, which was written by um, by man under pseudonym Adam Adam Gottlieb, which is has like scores and scores of these these uh, still legal um, substances that you can ap- obtain fairly easily, and the church itself was active mostly in the 1970s and through the 1980s in and around San Francisco. And never had any legal problems, number one, because it was fairly low-key, and number two, because what it was using was technically not, what his its members were using were technically not illegal. And they had, they tried to come up with their own uh, practices and did various things. They didn't really have a set theology. They were very libertarian about that. They say it's, you know, individual conscience is really what's the important thing is. We want the freedom of of the individual to decide for themselves what uh, what God is, what spirit is, what a good life is, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just with us, these are substances we've declared as sacraments are kind of the, the, the road to that. If I remember correctly, I just can't remember the groups, but uh, you wrote about how this this church influenced future groups. Can you, do you remember the, the names of oh, yeah. these, these present yeah. day groups? Well, the big, the big and relatively famous one is the Temple of the True Inner Light, and they were started by a guy in New York City who had been a member of the Yippies, who were the really, really extreme uh, new left group that kind of pioneered a lot of the media pranking and culture jamming that we see today in politics and in all sorts of places. Um, he had tried to set up a, a, an independent branch of the Native American church in New York. And when that, he got busted and that failed, 
he discovered a uh, a legal uh, tryptamine called DPT. It's a relative of the much better known DMT. Um, very fast acting and very intense trip. Um, usually smoked, but I guess there are other ways it can be ingested. And he formed the Temple of the True Inner Light and rented a um, a storefront down the Lower East Side back when the Lower East Side was just really a no-go area and was very bohemian uh, at the same time. And if you visited the storefront church there and they thought you weren't a cop or crazy or whatever, uh, you would receive some of the instruction from them. Um, they were very they were somewhat, they were sort of Gnostic Christian in their, uh, in their theology and what they believe and could smoke some raspberry leaves that were um, impregnated with DMT. And uh, Peter Gorman, who was a journalist for High Times, visited there in the early 90s and wrote a very amusing account of it uh, in, that, in that magazine that I quote in uh, Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches. Uh, they never had any problems legally i think the cops were just in in manhattan were just so busy trying to stop the heroin and cocaine trade that they just figured oh here's this handful of 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 hippies in this this little storefront church doing a legal psychedelic this isn't you know this isn't worth our time uh the storefront church eventually closed i think in the face of gentrification the um temple of the true inner light still exist, but they're very low-key. Um, I tried to, I contacted them and tried to get more information out of them, but they really, they told us, told me, well, we're not into publicity. Mm-hmm. So I just let them be at that and okay. uh, yeah. use, use the other information I'd gotten about them. But yeah, if you, if you put them in a search engine, you'll find them. They're still, they have a tripod website. That's, uh, <laughs> that's how nineties they are. Uh, <laughs> They're, uh, yeah, but they're still out there. Um, it's just very, very sub Rosa yeah, yeah. um, compared to what they were in, in, in the late 80s and the early mm-hmm. 90s in Manhattan. Yeah. In contrast to the earlier groups that uh, you've discussed, the uh, Ethiopian Zion Coptic Church and the Rastafarians seemed quite different as you were writing about them in, in the book. Uh, this group had money. It had properties. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had influence with the music scene uh, that came from the Rastafarians. Of course, everyone most likely has heard of Bob Marley. So, you know, yeah, that's, absolutely. Yes. Are, uh, big... the, great, the great cult porteur of Rastafarianism. <laughs> right. That's how the rest of the world knew, knows about it is through him and through the other radio yeah, artists. Right. So yeah. they had this very successful uh, organization that, uh, that they were running. Uh, but as you stated, uh, what what started as a church became a profit-oriented drug smuggling business. Um, to, to quote a passage from your book, uh, I believe it's from page 201, uh, mm-hmm. like the Native American church, the Ethiopian Zion Coptic church is the spiritual child of an oppressed people that found medicinal and spiritual healing in a plant and fought for the right to consume it as a sacrament. And like the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, its story is one of how a religious community based on the use of proscribed sacraments can be destroyed when it starts to traffic in them, even if its intentions are to share the entheogen and enlighten the rest of humanity. End quote there. Um, would you mind expanding on this aspect with regard to this 
war on drugs side of the story? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the Brotherhood uh, because they were, after Millbrook broke up, um, that was where Timothy Leary took refuge. They were a group of uh, former former street gang in uh, Southern California in Orange County who had uh, turned on to acid when it was still legal and had decided that they were going to be a uh, a spiritual brotherhood that would turn on the rest of the world to this miracle chemical. They, I think largely because they had been a gang, because they had been a, a criminal fraternity, uh, set up a very effective uh, network for smuggling and distribution of um, of LSD, and most of the LSD was really that was that was not for profit. They were just doing that to turn on the world. They were making money from cannabis smuggled in from Mexico and later hashish from Asia. They really were the ones that got got hashish coming to the U.S. in a big way. I mean, it had been a a big thing in Europe and other parts of the world for centuries, but it, it was really the Brotherhood that got the hashish trade going here. And they kept their ideals, and for most of, I think, through the 60s, and did a lot of free distribution of LSD just so that everybody could turn on. And um, they were the ones that developed what's called Orange Sunshine, which is really kind of the ne plus ultra of the varieties of uh, lysergics in the late 60s. But they just started making lots of money and became more and more outlaw. And the governments of the world were working harder and harder to try to bust them. And so they, and then they finally got into dealing cocaine to make money. And by that point, they just really were not a spiritual organization anymore. They'd, become, they'd gone back being gangsters again. Uh, and they kind of died in the 1970s. The leaders were put in prison for a long time. The operations were broken up. At one point, as far as sheer volume, they were the biggest drug smugglers in the world. But they've kind of reformed in recent years. Of course, the original members are all rather elderly now, but they're still saying, yeah, we, you know, we kind of messed up in some ways, but we still have these ideas, ideals about turning on the world and about, um, and about spiritual enlightenment for, for all of humankind. Uh, now, the Rastafarians, of course, really came out of the, um, the experience of the African diaspora in the New World very bibliocentric, but then had their particular take and that Haile Selassie was at least a, 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 the great prophet, if not a second coming of Christ. And then they also picked up on the use of cannabis as their uh, their sacrament, their way of, of, of enlightening themselves and seeing through the, uh, the lies of white Western Babylon. Uh, cannabis actually was not not really native to the place it had been brought in in the 19th century by um, Asian Indian workers. And uh, they, they'd attached their particular name to it, Ganja, which the Rastas picked up on. Uh, now, a group that evolved out of it was the Ethiopian Zion Coptic Church. Um, a lot of white hippies had gone to, to um, Jamaica in the late 60s and early 70s and had hung out with, with Rastas there and said, yeah, we, you know, we really like this way of life, this spirituality you have, which is actually pretty straight-laced and pretty Old Testament. Yeah. And, uh, you know, men have to grow their their beard and, and hair, and we can't cut them until enlightenment has been achieved or 
Jah has uh, blessed the, the world or whatever, and um, uh, very strong separation of the sexes, uh, very very socially conservative in many ways, but they smoked lots and lots of cannabis as part of their devotions. Uh, so a group spun off from it called the Ethiopian Zion Coptic Church that was multiracial, that admitted whites and Asians and others, uh, so long as they, they stuck by precepts of the group and they settled some of their members settled in florida and set up a very sophisticated uh large volume uh smuggling operation of cannabis first from jamaica and then later from columbia into florida and into other points of the u.s and they made just a huge amount of money off of it bought a uh, a mansion on an island in uh, uh off of miami beach and really, although they were, by the late 70s, they, uh, they just had a, the mansion and all these properties and this very sophisticated uh, smuggling operation going on. And um, a lot of them, it, again, it began to become more of a business than a spiritual pursuit for a lot of them. And so they were, they, there were problems inside the group. And then finally, the 60 Minutes News Show got word of these people and did a segment on them in 1979 and that was kind of i get into that in the book about how how that kind of scandalized a lot of people because of what the um the cameras caught but and that was sort of the beginning of the end for them they just they just became too too visible and then the dea really cracked down and eventually they all went to court and tried to use the first amendment defense and it didn't work any better for them than it had for leary or anybody before that and the leaders did long prison terms. And again, they, they kind of survive as a shell. There's a gentleman in Iowa named Carl Olson, who was one of the, the original uh, EZCC faithful who kind of keeps it going online and has worked as an activist in, in, in Iowa for, for cannabis legalization. And it's still kind of out there, at least conceptually, but the, the, as a, as a real active community, that's, that's gone mostly. Right. Well, it was a fascinating uh, chapter of, of the book. A lot of the other other groups that you had uh, discussed were always struggling with money, and it you know it was yeah yeah this, yeah. this seemed so different. So they, I mean, they just seemed yeah. to be so successful, and then yet, yeah, there were all yeah. these, these issues with the with the drugs and yeah. the ECCC and, and the Brotherhood. Yeah, that was they financed themselves through uh, through deal, through smuggling, dealing as contraband, yeah. and they yeah. both became rather rather wealthy and that's kind of what led to their ends in, in, right. in both cases. Yeah. yeah. Again, fascinating material. The last major group you discuss in your book uh, is the group known as Ayahuasca Healings. Uh, mm-hmm. With this group, we see a more mainstream acceptance of the use of mm-hmm. ayahuasca for the betterment of people's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, famous figures such as William Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg, and Terrence and Dennis McKenna have written about their experiences with ayahuasca. Uh, mm-hmm. Yet the group called Ayahuasca Healings, founded by Christopher, a.k.a. Trinity de Guzman, seems to have attempted to profit commercially from the attention directed towards this substance. And mm-hmm. a dark side, if you will, uh, of his practices has been discussed by academics. Uh, could you talk yes. more about this criticism that has arisen about de Guzman and his group? 
Well, that's a complicated story, and it's still ongoing. Mm. But really to boil down what I write about in Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches is that de Guzman, like Leary before him, was a very enthusiastic self-promoter and very much an entrepreneur and had a really powerful life-changing experience on, um, I believe, chemical DMT initially and then discovered uh, the organic uh, version of it, which is um, which is ayahuasca, which is a brew of various psychoactive South American vines that has DMT and um, other other substances in it, and w- decided to pick a, become an evangelist for that around the time it was really being rediscovered, or at least dis- I don't know rediscovered, but discovered by in North America and really the West. I mean, it had been known about for a long time. And as you wrote, William S. Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg and people like that had had experiences and wrote, written about it in the early 60s. But at the time, it was just easier. It was more obscure. It was much easier to get it at LSD or cannabis or whatnot than it was to procure the, the fines for this. And it's a very... Uh, intense it's kind of like peyote it's an intense experience that where you can become physically sick and and so it really didn't gain in popularity until the mckenna brothers started writing about it in true hallucinations in the 90s and uh guzman kind of caught the wave of it in uh, around 2010 and formed a, a an organization called ayahuasca healings and he said well, I've seen all these people, all these uh, psychedelic tourists going to Peru or Bolivia or Brazil to have their ayahuasca experience with shamans. Why not have it in the USA? Why not make it convenient and and easier than having to go into the jungle and, and deal with all the, the discomfort there? Uh, so he formed the organization, and for a few weeks, they were holding ayahuasca retreats on a land, some land in uh, Washington State outside of Seattle. And some problems started coming up. Not only did he find out that he was in very shaky ground legally, uh, the thing with ayahuasca is the vines, the plants that, um, that constitute it are legal in the United States. You just cannot brew them. Um, that's And so he was in kind of a gray area and there were also a lot of reports coming out uh, from attendees that, well, this guy's got a a Jesus complex. He doesn't, you know, it's poorly organized. They're being irresponsible, blah, 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 blah. And so he kind of uh, shut down the Washington operation and moved to Mexico where I believe he still, he and the organization still are. But for a time um, he was, when they were, he was, holding these retreats in the United States and was kind of at least trying to set up a beachhead for American Awayahaska spirituality. And a, um, a little footnote there is there are two Brazilian churches that have missions here who fought the courts over their sacramental use of ayahuasca and won, mainly because like the Native American church, they could demonstrate that this has a history of indigenous use in their country. Ayahuasca Healings and a couple of the other groups that are having problems, that are, are homegrown, that are uh, that are still fighting the courts and whatever, don't have that. 
so it's this is it's funny just how how main I don't know if I'd say mainstream, but just how uh, above ground uh, ayahuasca circles and practices are right now. Even though they're operating in this area where it's not totally legal, um, and they have to be kind of circumspect in a lot of places, but. Just de Guzman and ayahuasca healings were the most famous and the most influential of all these groups in North America, and they still exist. And I think, uh, I think de Guzman's going to be back. He's very young and very, um, very enthusiastic, and is a self-publicist. And I think as things, laws and and uh, and mores change in North America regarding uh, entheogens, regarding psychedelics, he'll be back to do some more work here. Hmm. That's interesting. The um, the Brazilian chapters that do have the legal status, one is Santo Daime, mm-hmm. and the, what is the name yeah. of the other one? Do you the know? Unel do Vegetal. I'm probably butchering the uh, Brazilian <laughs> Portuguese there, but yeah, they they both um, they both started in uh, in Brazil and they have missions here. And one of them fought, uh, I believe it was the uh, the Oregon State Supreme Court. The other one took their their case to the U.S. Supreme Court and got positive rulings in both cases. Mm. That you know these are legitimate missions of a real um, indigenous. Well, I wouldn't really call it indigenous, but a traditional practice in Brazil. And mm. it's okay for them to brew ayahuasca and use right. it in their rights. And I, as I mentioned in the book, uh, I think the court decisions might have been influenced by, well, this, is, this stuff is just so obscure. And from what we've been told about it, it's just such an intense and, un, and, and uncomfortable experience as far yeah. as getting really sick and throwing up and all the other mm-hmm. pro- uh, things associated with the brew. This isn't really going to be, this is, these people are just so marginal. It's probably not going to be a problem here and it's just it seems to be mostly among brazilian americans but then de guzman came on the scene right. and really started promoting the whole thing and trying to make it an american practice or he's canadian but make a north american uh um practice and that's when the trouble started well that's also where the criticism from the academics came in too right they were uh, one yeah. no i don't have i should have well, written the yeah. lady's name down uh, but she was, uh, her criticism was that this, uh, among other things, uh, that mm-hmm. it was cultural appropriation of, uh, yeah, he was trying to commercialize. She, further than that. she said it's not cultural appropriation, it's cultural expropriation. Exp- yeah. yeah, exactly. Sorry. Here he is trying to pass off this stuff, on the one hand, trying to pass off this stuff as this very traditional uh, South American indigenous practice that's legitimate. On the other hand, the church in its body of beliefs has all of this mythology and all of this theology and all of these other things in there that have nothing to do with the indigenous peoples of Latin America. This is all kind of new age and esoteric Christian and just, just kind of, kind of, uh, what we used to call fluffy bunny, uh, spirituality, uh, and this is just a real slap in the face yeah. uh, to these people because they've already had so many struggles trying to make this legitimate in their in their own countries and preserve their practices. And here it is being marketed as this kind of low effort, high cost, new age fad. Right, right. Very, very interesting uh, material that you have written uh now that uh, that you've done all of this research and you've written the book, 
what are your opinions now uh, about the use of entheogens for consciousness expansion or religious experiences and have they changed at all? Well, one thing that concerns me right now, well, there's a couple things that concern me about it right now. Uh, number one, and this has just been a concern for a long time, is that too often people have treated the more powerful substances, meaning LSD, psilocybin, uh, things like that, um, the, the tryptamines, as party drugs. They aren't party drugs. Uh, they it can really go in and rearrange your brain and your soul in some pretty profound ways. And if you're just doing it for kicks, um, you're leaving yourself wide open to some big problems. Uh, I think they need to be done very mindfully. Um, if you're doing it for the first time, it should be with somebody who's already done it, who's experienced, who knows how to talk somebody down from a bummer. Um, and it should be in an environment um, with this familiar, that's peaceful. And after the experience, you should try to integrate it. You should say, okay, what did I get out of this? What did this tell me about myself? What did this tell me about the outside world? How am I going to apply this? And what kind of non-chemical non spiritual discipline can I maybe adopt to... Um, to kind of continue the experience, whether that be meditation or prayer or yoga or what have you. The other thing that really concerns me is how enthusiastically the pharma companies seem to be leaping into this. Now that it's being shown more and more that psilocybin has very, uh, very strong potential healing, uh, psychotherapeutic healing uh, properties and MDMA has real, uh, real good properties for um, treating PTSD and other disorders, uh, the drug companies are getting interested. And it's about to become a commodity. And to me, these things should not be commodities. I mean, I'm a Californian. I and I have watched what happened to cannabis when it became a commodity. And it's just, to me, it's been a total failure. I, I always was an advocate of decriminalization, where if you're an adult, you can you can grow a few plants, you can possess a bit, you don't get, you absolutely don't give it to minors, and you do not sell it. Once money comes in, you know, Ethiopian Zen Coptic Church, uh, Brotherhood of Eternal Love, once it becomes a business, you've basically destroyed the spiritual aspect of it. And they at least were, were rather organic, low-level drugs, not low-level, but, but essentially drug smugglers. When you get big corporations in, you know, you can, you can forget about it. You can forget about this, you know, the, the spiritual aspect of it. When it all becomes also, when it all becomes about therapy, yes, therapy is important. Therapy, healing is, is really good and really necessary, but there's more to the experience than just uh, trying to set set your brain and your psychology right. There's there's a visionary aspect as well that has that that gets kind of kind of pushed to the side in this uh, in in the environment we have now. So, what are your ideas about uh, scientists now who are uh, working to try to use these types of substances for for therapeutic? Uh, 
uses purposes okay. well in the in in the in the field of peer research i'm all for it i think one of the okay. real problems with lsd and these other substances is once they were made illegal and were so demonized we couldn't kind of back off a bit and try to view them more objectively and do the research on these chemicals that needs to be done to really understand what they do to the human mind and the human psyche uh I'm, I really like the fact that it's much more above ground now and that a lot of research, legitimate research is being done by responsible, trained people in these areas. Um, I just don't like, as I said earlier, the, you know, the growing commodification right. of right. The, uh, them and uh, of the experience. But no, I am I'm a great supporter of, of organizations like MAPS, who've been around for many years and have just organized and subsidized and uh, done and, and publicized um, research being very important research being done about all these substances. Definitely important things to ponder. Um, Mike, I'd like to thank you for talking with me today. Okay. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, it's been a great, uh, great discussion with you. I highly recommend that everyone go out and buy your book <laughs> as it yes. is uh, really an eye-opening historical account and it's just an enjoyable read. Uh, and there's much more to read than what uh, that we could talk about today. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, my, my stamp of approval, <laughs> if that okay, means anything. <laughs> so... Um, where can people find you online or find out more about your well, work? Um, there is an Instagram page called Psychedelic Cults where I um, have a lot, like over a hundred right now, um, photos and art and other visual representations that I couldn't get into the book for a variety of reasons from these groups and from uh, the spiritual psychedelic experience. Um, my book, of course, Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches, can be found on Amazon. And um, I suppose I could uh, I, I could pass my contact information on to you and any podcast listeners who want to uh, ask me questions. I, I would certainly be willing to answer them. And, Wonderful. Uh, we can do it that way. Okay, great. I will include that in the program notes. Uh, so, yes, thank you again for this conversation, Mike. Oh, thank you for having me on, Stephanie. You're very welcome. My thanks again to Mike for this highly engaging and enjoyable discussion. Mike recently presented at the second annual Psychedelic Intersections, Cross-Cultural Manifestations of the Sacred Conference, hosted by the Center for the Study of World Religions, and the Harvard Psychedelics Project at Harvard Divinity School. This conference, quote, explores how psychedelics and spirituality intersect differently across cultures, contexts, and traditions. The conference asks the questions, how does psychedelic spirituality emerge and diverge across time and place? What is necessary to promote healthy partnership across beliefs, approaches, disciplines, and communities? How can psychedelic researchers and practitioners build bridges across existing divides? 
What could the intercultural future of psychedelic spirituality look like? End quote. If you are interested to follow the work of the CSWR or attend future conferences, please visit their website. I will provide the link in the program notes, along with a link to Mike's new book and other relevant links. Okay, that's all for now. I hope to bring you a new podcast episode soon. I've got many things lined up for you, but I'm not sure what will be ready first. Take care, and as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>